Hello, friends and listeners. Below the line, at least today's episode, is brought to you by a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two-ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every morning and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking too much coffee day to day. And it is the single most important part of my morning ritual to do more and stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, stress management, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, etc. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter promo code BTL for below the line to get 15% off and try it for yourself. I also wanted to tell you about MetaLab. You probably didn't know it at the time, but MetaLab has been the secret sauce behind products used by billions of people around the world, with a B, billions. They've been creating apps and products for over a decade with startups like Slack and Coinbase, as well as industry leaders like Google and Uber, and I have been recommending them to friends and founders of companies for years, way before starting this podcast. From delightful design to world-class engineering and everything in between, MetaLab works with teams of all sizes to sweat the details and build products that your users will love. I am a massive, massive fan of MetaLab. They are one of the only agencies that I consistently recommend and have been since my friends at Coinbase used them maybe six years ago and loved working with them. There are a lot of agencies out there, but if you're like me and obsessed with pixel-perfect products that people love to use, you've got to talk to MetaLab. Check them out at metalab.co. That is M-E-T-A-L-A-B dot C-O, metalab.co. And when you get in touch, let them know that James sent you. And if you dig below the line, we'd love a review. That's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. And if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star ones we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. It only takes two to three seconds and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is with one of the world's best venture investors coming from perhaps the best venture firm in the world as well. My guest is Alfred Lin, who is a partner at the famed venture capital firm, Sequoia Capital. Alfred is an investor in companies like Airbnb, DoorDash, and Instacart, among others. His track record as an investor is impressive, but as an operator building companies like Link Exchange, sold to Microsoft, his own venture firm years ago that invested in winners like OpenTable, and then Zappos selling to Amazon. It's, it's clear that his track record as a builder is just as impressive as he is as an investor. So as you can imagine, Alfred has a lot of insights from uniquely being at such high levels on both sides of the table. We talk about how he spots great founders, what the process at Sequoia is really like, peeking behind the veil of one of the most, perhaps the most prestigious investment firm in the world. We talk about the books that have impacted his thinking as an investor. It's not what you would expect. 
and we talk about the silver lining of this new world we all find ourselves in. We also spend a little bit of time about talking about the stories that have shaped who he has become, things that you probably couldn't read anywhere, but are the things that he thinks a lot about. All that and more with one of the smartest, but also one of the kindest people in Silicon Valley. This is Below the Line. All right, Alfred, cheers, sir. Digital remote cheers. Hello, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you so much for, I've been anticipating this episode for uh, several weeks now. I'm really excited to get a chance to chat with you. We've known each other for maybe eight eight or so years, but it is, um, I have a feeling this conversation will be deeper than than anyone we've had in in the past, but it'll also be on a topic that I know that you think a lot about and around creator psychology and and just the the journey that happens in between the ears as a a creator as a maker. Uh, you you actually have one of the most interesting backgrounds of guests that we've had on because you are a creator, a maker, and an investor, and you've been at Sequoia now for about ten years, and I want to get into all of just the rich history that you have in your, you know, creator investor biography. But I first wanted to start out, what is it like right now running a VC firm remotely, you know, digitally uh, with with everything that's happening with COVID and and still operating with Sequoia? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show and thank you for um, your friendship and our relationship. It's been always been fun to talk to you and I'm glad that you're doing this podcast and you're writing a book about creator psychology and I'm happy to contribute. I think in terms of running, I don't know if we call us running anything. I think we are trying to do the best we can, trying to still um, help our founders, first of all, found, help our founders navigate this crazy environment. I think for the founders that we have established a relationship with, it's not that different than calling them, sending them texts, seeing them over video. There are certain things that would be better in person, but we can, we have adjusted quite well to being in this post-COVID world and being locked down and doing everything over Zoom. I think making new investments, there there are pluses and minuses. I, I don't have to travel as much. I'm not flying to New York to meet an entrepreneur or going to board meetings. So I get a lot of time back. And I think there are things that are just more efficient done over over Zoom. And and Zoom, the company, and Eric Yuan has proven that you can do a lot over Zoom when they went public themselves and did all of their roadshows over Zoom as opposed to in person. Uh, it has challenged our beliefs and our, psych- uh, our sort of, uh, our also sort of challenging our psychology of just trying to do as much as we can um, over Zoom. Is And your, your partner, uh, Roloff, was just speaking about, I think you retweeted, it was talking about how COVID is, the silver lining is that it's accelerating a lot of, um, I think he termed it uh, adoption cycles. Do you mind telling me, and, and you retweeted it and, and added some commentary. Do you mind telling listeners about that thought and, and what he meant by that? Yeah, I think the one thing that we sometimes uh, find is that a company 
comes up with a new idea and it takes a lot of, there's a lot of friction to change consumer behavior. It, it takes time because people are set in their ways. And what, what has happened now is that we have basically been shelter in place and that causes us to have to do a lot of things online, challenging some of the things that we believe to be true. I have to have this uh, sort of meeting in person. I have to uh, sort of look someone in the eye and, and, and judge their body language to really get a sense of them. And now that you can't, uh, certain things have to be done differently. And I think the, the, there are a few set of things that we have come to understand that we don't have to do it in person. I, I think there are certain things that are better over uh, online. I think getting groceries delivered, uh, and we are investors in Instacart and we are investors in DoorDash, um, getting some of this stuff delivered is is a good thing. Um, more people shopping on Amazon has been has been good, and you don't have to go into crowded stores. And the experience there are set, there are a set of experiences that are better online. It doesn't mean all experiences are better online. I still prefer to go into a restaurant when restaurants open and get the dining experience. And there are certain things where I do want to touch and the fabric before I buy it or try things on. So I don't think the offline world will go away in in real life will not go away but it challenges our our thinking about some of the things that we really have to do in person versus online and so adoption cycles for things that are purely online is getting accelerated because we're hearing about them we're um and we're feeling how much more efficient certain things can be uh my son has basically learning online now and there are certain things where like he he himself consciously sort of acknowledges trying to do group projects together over over zoom is not as efficient as being able to sort of work and collaborate collaborate in person and there are and we all know that children learn better in person it's sort of in small groups and in person and collaborating in their own way because that they learn from each other, not just from the teacher or the classroom. If it was just purely the teacher or the classroom, you could teach that and lecture style, you could teach that all over uh, online education. And then I do think that, for example, uh, we will not travel as much. I, I joke that all non-essential, the fact that companies were canceling non-essential travel seems a little silly because they should have, Never been on essential travel. <laughs> you as right, a CEO right. and a founder are like, why do I, why am I paying for for these travel expenses? I shouldn't have to. They should only have essential travel. And now that we have cut all travel, you realize there are a whole bunch of things that seem non-essential. And I think we won't go back to the world that we had before completely, and we'll be better for it. One of the the threads in which we have gotten to know each other's through um, Airbnb acquiring my company and and you're on the board of Airbnb. I know that much of this is is private and, and can't be shared, but what can you share about the sentiment for you, you know exactly what you're just saying? Travel might be different for a long time, but there are the obvious notions and where that that hurts Airbnb. What are some of the sentiments that you've heard or you personally feel that make make it maybe a exciting opportunity for a business in in the travel space right now and maybe airbnb specifically or just being able to 
to uh, potentially maximize the change in trends that will come after you know COVID? Sure. I, I, I'd probably just start with how great Airbnb is as a company, but all of that has to do with the founders and the founding team and Brian, Joe, and Nate coming together in this time of crisis. And, you know, there they were the, the darling company of 2020 expecting to go public. And now they're, they're hit with a pandemic and they probably hit the hardest because travel shut down. I don't know how many countries around the world, probably all of them have travel restrictions of some sort. So international travel is shut, but we as human beings um, love to explore and love to travel. And I don't think travel will be gone forever. And people are going to find different ways of traveling. Even some of my partners have decided to rent an Airbnb a little bit away from San Francisco uh, so they can shelter in place in a nicer setting so that they can go out for a run more easily um, or uh, enjoy the Joy Tahoe, for example. My brother has uh, and my mom has decided to shelter in place in Florida. And many of my friends who uh, live in New York and chose their apartments for proximity to work or they don't spend a lot of time in their apartments have decided to sort of shelter slightly outside of New York City. And many, many of the sort of things that Airbnb is doing is first transition from short, sort of, sort of um, short-term sort of vacation rent, rental trips to longer-term stays um, because people want to shelter in place in slightly different areas. And like if I, I can work from home and my kids are learning online, I can probably do that almost anywhere. I have course have decided to just stay in san francisco and uh, support san francisco and it's lockdown but you get my point and then airbnb is try- has tried to get experiences local experiences and have had a fair number of successful experiences in person and in different geographies and they've migrated some of those into online experiences and one of the things that have like surprised me to the upside and the silver lining here is during a crisis, there are people who rise to the occasion and you find that people have pivoted already from, I know that I'm not going to get the summer rentals, the short-term summer rentals in Napa, but I can rent this place out for a month to someone who wants to shelter in place in my place. And so the hosts have been extremely entrepreneurial on Airbnb and the experiences hosts have been similarly um, been extremely entrepreneurial. And, you know, Brian was telling me about this uh, restaurant tour that used to be a bodybuilder that became a drag, um, sort of became a drag queen and performed in, the, uh, in his restaurant. And then, the, then decided that, well, my restaurant shut down. So I'm going to, uh, going to sort of host, sangria tastings with my drag friends and have a great party every single night and entertain people through through video i i just like wow send me the link i want to i want to experience this too and the you know sort of people are creative um and they find their audience and you know so whatever we're going through and you know this is not uh fun to go through i find comfort that people find different ways to express themselves and different ways to be successful and different ways to find 
success, whatever it means to them, and pivot and become a better form of themselves. Winston Churchill uh, is famously known of saying, never waste a crisis. I also just think that if I had to refine that, it's about never wasting a crisis to connect with the people that you love, the people that you care about, the people you want to develop deeper connections with. I mean, when, when Churchill said that, he was saying that to his constituency. He was, in effect, deepening his connection as a leader to his people. And I thought that that was a fairly powerful line in business. But then over time, I've learned that he was actually talking to his citizens, his British citizens, and trying to get a deeper connection to them. And we see that in this crisis, that people are developing deeper relationships with the people that they care about, with the business, with the people that support their businesses, with the people that support their art. Uh, in ways that they probably could not have imagined um, before the crisis. Right. Yeah. That's that's an interesting distinction of the of the Churchill quote of you. It's usually termed in terms of kind of in a situation of how to be, you know, on the offensive, be aggressive. Kind of in the dynamic of taking taking a position, you know, against your opponents of never waste a crisis. We can. We can advance our our mission, and but that, I think that's an interesting uh, perspective or dynamic that he's saying it to his own constituency because I think it's that is one of the most powerful things about a crisis is it shakes you from shakes you from maybe a hypnotic mind state of of caring about things that don't matter and it actually like this like this crisis we're in I I don't know anyone that hasn't had. Um, their kind of sights turned inward towards their family, towards their home. I mean, everybody is is kind of sanctuarifying their home. Everybody is talking about how much time they're spending with their family, talking about how exactly what you're saying about how they can do so much of their work from home, how they don't need to travel for work. It's actually, yeah, the silver lining seems to be refining or reemphasizing what, what has always mattered to us rather than uh, showing us something something brand new, the and I I found it so interesting on the the Airbnb experiences side, it, that that experience that you that you chatter about or the that you mentioned about the drag queen, what were they drinking mimosas or uh, uh, it's the sangria tasting sangria tasting yeah that's that's just you can do that over Zoom or over video uh, and get to know people around the world. I was in a a book club recently and it was a book club Zoom. And it was someone was like, "Hey, I'm Ajay. I'm in uh, Mumbai." And someone was like, "Hey, I'm Todd. I'm in Florida." And it was just it. It was actually crazy how it didn't even phase me that there were people. I was in San Francisco, just in a room with a virtual room with twelve people from everywhere from India to Florida to Puerto Rico, and it was cool that it didn't phase me. It was even cooler that I realized everyone's just announcing where they're from, and it's not phasing anyone. That we're all chatting together around the world uh, in this, you know, digital book club. There is a lot of a lot of things that that are inessential for us to to form those deeper connections, and this is kind of highlighting that. That's very cool. What is in terms of um, you mentioned Churchill and and the application of his quote to to business. You and I have chatted about the deeper lessons you've taken from different thinkers, leaders 
different business people. We chatted about a book that you really love, Man's Search for Meaning, and its application to to just our own journeys. Do you mind telling listeners a little bit about uh, what the book Man's Search for Meaning is and, and why that's one of one of the books that you mentioned to to founders and creators as as a great read? Well, Man's Man's Search for Meaning was recommended by my partner Ruloff, and um, and I you know read it again. I think I read it earlier in my life. Didn't quite touch me the same way um, as I read it the second time when Ruloff recommended it to me. And it's about a person that went through pretty horrific stuff. He was um, he had to sort of, he he was locked up in a concentration camp and had to survive the concentration camp. That what got him through was his desire to get to the other side of a horrific situation and to meet up with his family. Um, and that you know kept him going. But during that time, I think he sort of refined what is important um, in life. And you know his writings are about the title of the book, Our Search for Meaning. Um, and you know my favorite line of that book and it's it's a fast read and i think it's one of those reads where you read it one time and you don't quite it, it's touching and all that you don't quite grasp it you read it a second time you like start highlighting certain <laughs> lines right, in it and, you right. rem- and then the third time you start remembering it and i i think the the thing that um about reading and learning about exceptional people from all walks of life, whether in this situation as a doctor or a politician like Winston Churchill or your favorite sports person, maybe Kobe Bryant, uh, or your favorite entrepreneur and learning from them is that exceptional people share certain things that we can all learn from. And they have life lessons that we can all learn from. We don't have to start from scratch. And in Uh, In Man's Search for Meaning, the quote that I remember most is, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Um, And this is coming from a person that had to experience horrific uh, horrific situations of living through a concentration camp. And it puts things in perspective, right? Like, we are dealing with a health crisis. This is horrible in some ways, but we're not going, we're not living through that. We're not going... You know, and one, you know, Doug Leone said, yeah, this is bad. Uh, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but, you know, my father's generation had to go to war for World War, uh, World War II. Or World, it, so it, it's, it's, um, it does put things in perspective when you read about people and their lives, especially people who have, who have gone through, frankly, worse things. And, um, and, and that quote that I just talked about, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how, I think that's been sort of used now in business. We, we talk about making sure our businesses have a why, have a mission. And it's ironic it took so long for us to realize that. And so part of trying to learn lessons from exceptional people and applying it differently is you can learn. You can just study all great business people, and you'll learn the business lessons. But some sometimes, learning from people from a different walk of life, their lessons can be just as applicable to you in business. And and that's an example that you know probably in the last ten years is what, where the sort of you know start with why statement came about. Um, and yet this book was 
written a lot, a, a lot longer than 10 years ago. Right, right. Yeah, the well I want to I want to go deeper on that but I also want to I want to back up and ask about you uh and and the the question that I that I ask guests there's two questions that I always touch on with guests and one of them is can you share three stories that have helped shape who you've become either professionally personally but three stories in your life that have helped shape who you've become and and then I think we'll touch back on the the philosophical uh a deeper side of of business here in in a few minutes, but what are three stories that have helped shape who Alfred Lin has become, professionally or personally? Wow, that's a powerful question. I've never been asked that question. That's a really good question. Um, maybe I'll go back in time and um, and just tell you a little bit about myself. And in terms of, I was born in Taiwan and. My father worked for an international bank and he was traveling all the time to set up this operation or that operation. He worked in for the, um, he was one of the early people who studied computer science and was trying to implement computer programs to do accounting. And so um, I think when I was three or so, I was told, my dad told me that he was leaving for an extended trip and I started crying and he's like, Look, Alfred, this is um, this is just temporary. Um, it's painful, but it's temporary. We'll see each other again. And I remember that, um, and it was painful to just to just know that important people in your life may come and go. And nothing happened to my dad, by the way. <laughs> I just like, okay. but at yeah. that time, at the age of like three or four, your father leaving for a few months is almost like them leaving forever because you have no concept of time. And that, that was, that really rocked my world. And a few years later, we, he started working in New York. So we moved to New York and I had to relearn everything because I had to learn English, et cetera. And so being an immigrant and seeing my father sort of branch out and do things that probably no other person in this generation would do gave me a level of wonder, lust, seeing what's possible. Um, he was by, he was still a very conservative person from a maybe financial investment or career perspective, but he was learning computer science back then. He was implementing that in a bank. He was trying to take a bank in Taiwan and making it international. So Relative to his generation, he had a fair amount of risk-seeking behavior or business, and I think I learned that from him. And that is fascinating. I think it's. I think it is. It's really helpful. It my. I remember my oldest. It's really helpful for you know, the prior generations to help push the envelope. It, it, not just as as a model and example, but it it also allows you to push it even further. And and I remember I've got three older brothers, and the oldest brother. My oldest brother, Adam, him going to New York to, for, we grew up in Texas uh, for for undergrad was so, it seemed so far, it seemed so crazy. And I remember my parents were like, you don't need to go there. You can go to school out here. And But him doing that then allowed me to go, to, it was a cakewalk for me to go to the East Coast for school. And then, um, and I took it a little bit further by by moving to South Africa after graduation. And that was, you know, it was, a, it was kind of the same conversation. Why do you need to go there? And, but it was it was really helpful that he had helped blaze the the trail and and my dad had also moved around for 
for his you know pers- professional pursuits that it made it kind of the norm that you go out of the out of your comfort zone go where people are might be a little bit more unwilling to go to create opportunity that's a that's a big move from taiwan to to new york and it, i'm not surprised that it helped set the foundation for you to take some risk yeah and then you know it's and 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 your story about your your parents and many of our stories like these are about you know our parents and the second story i would have is about my mom who like set the foundation of she sets high standards and uh, my mom <laughs> if you compare my mom and my dad i think my dad worked hard and has a lot of grit um both my parents, i'm just going to mm. compare and contrast and i love both my parents but you know but my mom is i would just say has you know probably more iq points than my dad not that my dad's not smart but my mom was exceptional and she was the number one in her class um she graduated number one in her class everywhere she went she would she had incredible memory and she was the fastest rising vp in her bank in a world where you know at that time you just didn't see women as a vp in a bank and she also worked in taiwan but then when she came to the us she's decided like well i want my kids to be exceptional and she just she's a <laughs> she she just set high standards and my brother and i would always complain she's just just She's exceptional and hard to get along with. <laughs> um, and well, it seems we, to have worked with what you what you've accomplished. It seems to have had um, seems like a net positive impact. Totally net positive impact, and um, you know, I think that that is that has shaped who I am. I have high standards for myself, and and I never question whether, even though my mom had high standards, I never question how much she loved me, and I love her for it too. I wouldn't be the person who I am today without her pushing so hard to try to reach for the next level. And you know, the thing that she did that I'm not sure many parents are willing to do is she was willing to do the hard work. Uh, she would always she would read one chapter ahead or two chapters ahead and for my classes and to make sure that I understood every single concept. She had high standards and if You know, it's a sort of typical Asian, Asian sort of parent thing. What what happened if you came home with a ninety eight? What happened to the the two points, kind of thing. But it wasn't about it wasn't about the points. It was for her. It was more about did you really understand it? She cared less about the test and more about true understanding. And she didn't. She just didn't accept me un, like remembering the answer. She wanted to know if you could derive the answer. Which led me to sort of think about things, and you know, back to sort of some of the things that we were talking about. Like sometimes you want to be able to do the hard work and to get to the source truth. And I think I learned that from my mom. She just never accepted, "Oh, here is the answer," or "Here is a shortcut," or "Here is the tweet," or "Here is the you know short form." Fine, use that as a summary to start. As as the high level summary, but if you really want to get to know something, you want to go extremely deep, and be willing to do that. And the third story is a little bit. So it's part of growing up. Like we rely on our parents for a lot of things, and you know, typical Asian parents. I they wanted me to be a to be a professor because you contribute to the world's knowledge if you can, if you're actually smart enough to to get a PhD and. And to do that, it, if you can't do that, then you can 
be a doctor and help cure people of any diseases and give back to society that way. If you can't do that, go be good, become a lawyer and be a lawyer not for a corporation, but for, to fight for justice. And if you can't do that, then become um, an engineer and build stuff. Um, is is it kind of in that in that order? Was it kind of in that order for your family? It was it was in that order for my family, and and they you know all the way at the bottom was to become anything related to business, and <laughs> I obviously ended up in business. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I you know I will say when we first met, I was like this guy's not smart enough to be a professor as smart as you were Alfred. I was like, nope, business is, is the only rung of the ladder. No, that's, that is so interesting that that's kind of the, the last rung. Is it, it was it maybe from this? Why is that just to pursue that a little bit? Is it from the social side? It just not that perceived as that impactful to society. I think there is a bit of Confucius teaching where, you know, in the, in, in Chinese culture, the smartest people became civil servants because it was hard. And, and, and the system was different, right? The, you, the smartest people were the ones that got educated um, in a world where not everybody got educated. Um, and you got, free, you got free scholarships because of how well you tested or how well, how smart you were. And the, the country would, would subsidize your education and then you would become a civil, you would become a civil servant and part of the civil servants sort of group was to give back and teach. I um, see. The, the the so the to finish the story, I you know the sort of painful thing of growing up is to tell my parents, "Hey, I'm not. I, I dropped out of a PhD program. I'm not going to complete that." And they were very very uh, disappointed and upset with me for some period of time, but. At some point, you have to strike out, and and many of the things you can talk about. Confucius is one of the sort of philosophers that you should study too. But one of the things that, about growing up is like, yes, you go deep and you learn and you read about all these exceptional people. But at some point, you have to strike out and and be your own person. Hmm. Yeah, as that's a that's certainly a muscle that it is. If you can really tone that muscle of being able to go out on your own. And and not have to just outsource your thinking of what others want want of you. It certainly is um, it's powerful for creating obviously new businesses, but also just thinking differently for yourself. And and it's it's one that I think even as risky as my career path has been of moving different places, starting businesses, it still is was a muscle that kind of that independent journey that it took a long time to gear up for to make little tiny investments in side hustles before they become main hustles and and things like that your entrepreneurial journey is and in that independent thinking this might not have been a business that you that you told your parents about but um i remember reading that the way that you got to know tony shea um who you would end up starting a few businesses with and and ultimately zappos was did i do i get the story right where you he was a, he had a pizza shop or a pizza stand and and you were buying the pizzas like arbitrage and then selling them piece by piece is that is that correct the stories always get you know as you know yeah, what's the real get, one yes yeah, so yeah what's the real one <laughs> stories get crafted in ways that are hard to uncraft and you know it becomes a a legendary story like the the truth of the matter is, Tony, uh, I'll tell the full story, which is like also fascinating, uh, sort of creative 
standpoint and a and a sort of journey standpoint. And people back to like entrepreneurs are just like crafty and creative. So in our college dorm, um, there was a grill. It's it was not that successful in in terms of like it was popular, but just I didn't I don't think it like made a ton of money. And we're not talking about yeah like any amount of money. Let's just say you know most people who ran the grill wanted to break even at the end of the year. So. This was at Quincy House at Harvard. Um, every year, the seniors would auction off the rights to the grill to the next up-and-coming seniors. And, you know, the the money that you made was how much people were willing to pay for the grill because you basically broke even the whole year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, like, the art, that was the, the, the play. You put a little bit of money to work. You really didn't make any money because you run at a break even. And part of the reason it ran at break even was it made hamburgers, shakes and fries. And, um, there's only so margin, so, so much margin in that. Mm-hmm. Tony decided that, um, pizza was actually a higher margin, um, food because cheese is subsidized by the, the U S dairy, uh, farmers or, or the country. <laughs> I don't know who, who subsidizes the cost of dairy, uh, anymore, but um, but um, so this is like so you got you you're gonna win the rights to the grill and you're gonna invest in the pizza oven uh, to do this and so it was like yeah and and I was like well how's that gonna work you and were were you friends at this point or acquaintances did you already know each other acquaintances and you know not not deep friends but we're acquaintances and you know, we're, we live in the same dorm so we see each other and said hi so he decides that he's going to not bid on it for one year, but he's going to, as a rising junior, he's going to bid on it and own the rights of the grill for two years because then he can amortize the costs of the pizza oven over two years instead of one year. I'm like, interesting. Yeah. It's like interesting, very smart, like creative. And like, that's, this is the side of creativity that I think not, it's not like, it's not like genius level creativity, but it was, Genius level in the sense that, hey, no, why did nobody else think of this? It's like kind of obvious that if you had, if you ran the grill for two years, you can invest in it and and make it a better experience. So he put he 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 put up some TVs and filmed some uh, the back then then it was VH probably um, VHS tapes um, where he put he recorded. Um, movies and played those movies in in the grill. So it was a nicer place to hang out. He invested in a few chairs along with the pizza oven. You know how he won the the bid? How? Uh, Was knowing that he was the only person who was an up-and-coming junior that was going to own the rights to the grill for two years, he knew that he can outbid anyone. So he said the way he submitted his bid was highest bid Plus one dollar. <laughs> oh wow! Another creative idea, right? Um, That's uh, it, and you, yeah, you mentioned it's it's it, maybe not genius level, although there are there it, it's approaching that. I think it's you know creativity is imagination 
times courage and having the courage to then just, you know, not only have the ideas, but then also say, okay, yeah, I'm going to outbid everybody and I'm going to get the, I'm going to invest in you know, the chairs and TV. That's, that's, it's really fascinating to hear these little micro decisions that, that uh, ultimately, you know, predate what becomes, you know, the founder of Zappos. That's really cool. Yeah. And at Sequoia, we look for founders that have clarity, conviction, and courage, and creativity. And he has that in, in space across the board on this particular idea. And then future, same same situation with Link Exchange and with Zappos. But back, getting back to the story, so he wins the rights to the grill. He puts in these pizza ovens. He makes it a fun place to hang out. And we become fast friends talking about all of this. And you know, he one of the other ways that he w- he needed cash flow because he had just invested in all these things, and so he he wanted to give a discount to people who would get a membership pass. And I had a large college rooming group, so I, I negotiated with him on, sure, I'm happy to prepay and I'm happy to buy pizza pies of pizza every single night, and I just wanted to bring it upstairs and and give it to my roommates. I didn't really sell it to anybody else; it was just my roommates. Um, and I was just wanted my money back. So if the slices were two dollars a slice downstairs back then, maybe it'd be more now. And I got a discount, so it was a dollar seventy-five or a dollar fifty. I always got two dollars, and I, I always try to give the money back. And they would my my um, college roommates would just say no because I I don't want uh, to give you quarters. I'm like really, like you rather just. I mean, we're poor college students. So, like, what, what, what's so like interesting about a quarter? Well, it turns out, obviously, if you think about it, a quarter back then you needed for washing machines, drying machines, uh, vending machines. Quarters were a prized commodity, and you had to go to the bank to get rolls of quarters just to do some of these things. And people didn't want to make the extra trip. And so, it's one of these lessons about you know arbitrage. It, you know, if you think about things as commodities, you'll never think of it any other way. But the quarter should be a commodity, and yet it's not. And I think companies that succeed realize that you can say what they're selling is not that interesting, et cetera, et cetera. But they make it interesting. There's a story behind why their products succeed versus their competitors because they're selling value. Um, and the value I was selling was bringing pizza upstairs and selling it by the slice and people not wanting to part with their quarters. So a few years later, not, not a few years, a few months later of doing this, um, Tony finds out that I've been doing this and simple calculations have suggested that I make more uh, per hour than he does because of... Uh, how much he had to invest, the fact that some people try to, um, there's theft behind the cash register, there's leakage, there's spoilage, and all that kind of stuff. And all I do is come downstairs, go to the grill, and bring up the pizza, and that doesn't take a lot. Um, DoorDash door versus the restaurant. Yeah, and we become fast friends just through this experience. And I graduated a year earlier, came out to Stanford for my PhD program that I dropped out of. And my parents are still asking me when I'm going to finish that. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, and I still think it's funny uh, and they don't. Um, but um, when I came on campus at Stanford, Tony wanted to bring subways onto campus and there was no commercial operations back then. 
It's not like today there's Coupa Cafe at Stanford. They're like they wouldn't they wouldn't let any commercial operations. And so Tony's always been someone who's like just pushing the envelope, thinking out of the box. It's not that creative to if you think about it, it's not that creative. Why does this university want to run all of these food services? Like some of them could be better run by others if they wanted to. And Stanford would like completely reject the idea of having subways on their campus back then, even though there was, they, they would just say, there's a subways on University Avenue, but people have to get off out of their dorms and go travel down to University Avenue, which is a trek. And we are all lazy and don't want to make that trek, but they refuse to do that. So Tony had to find something else to do. And then he started Link Exchange, uh, which Sequoia funded and back to what Sequoia and Sequoia invested, I think $2.75 million for uh, in the company. And in 17 months, that company uh, was sold to Microsoft for $265 million. And sounds like a great outcome. I think we learned a lot from that experience of what to do and what not to do. Sounds like a phenomenal, phenomenal outcome. What, why do you say sounds like a, a good outcome if, if, as if there's a contrasting you know, story there? Well, I think financially it was a great outcome. And back then it was the third largest acquisition that Microsoft had done. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it wasn't good financially. Sequoia made a, 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 fair, a very good return in a short period of time. Our uh, employees were quite happy. But I do think that that company had a good why until we let the culture decline. And it's one of those things where we, we learn to get religion around culture and making sure everybody understands why of the company. Everybody buys into the culture. The ideas that now we talk about at Zappos, we learned through the mistakes of, of Link Exchange. Do you mind giving, giving a, a few examples of what you mean? We didn't interview people for culture fit. We didn't, um, I don't think everybody who, who joined were on the same mission. We hired people who did the job functionally, but wasn't, uh, didn't buy into the, the mission of the company. They were more mercenary than they were missionaries. And what, what goes through founders' minds to, you know, it, it sounds like at first blush that, you know, it's, it's obvious mistake and, and no one should make that mistake. But what was going through your minds to where you, you did allow the, those decisions to happen? Well, part of it, part of it was not knowing. It's not that we let these things happen. And by, by, by the way, was it knowable? Yes, it was knowable, but we didn't have the experience to know that we were letting, we were making this mistake. And, and sometimes you hire people and they look good on paper and they do their job well, but they're just not on your mission. And you spot that a little too late. I think we, when you interview specifically for a mission, then you, you start tuning for that. But if you never tune for that, you're not going to pick that up. How, how are you supposed to know that you should figure out whether someone really wants to build the largest banner advertising exchange on the planet and they're really into it, or they see it as an opportunity to uh, join a high-growth Sequoia-backed company where they potentially can make some get paid well um, through equity um, and take a risk. And you just sometimes you don't know. And, and one of the things that I have come to learn is that I don't think people change 
with um, with over time. But I think the more senior someone is, the better they are at telling you a good story. And so interviewing senior people is harder than interviewing people who are starting their career because the people who start out in their career, they don't know how to be anything else but their authentic selves. Interesting. I've never, I've never, I've never heard that, but that makes total sense that it's, yeah, you, you know, in the beginning, you, maybe you haven't even interviewed anyone. So you don't know what a great interview sounds like, or maybe it's two, three, four people. But as you become more senior, you could easily just jot down notes. Oh, that, you know, out of a hundred interviews, this, these were the really strong ones. Let me mimic that, you know, my next interview. Yeah. And so I, I think it's much, much harder to interview more senior folks. And um, when we hired more senior folks, they were there. They were on a mission. They were not on the mission. Uh, they were more mercenary. And it's not. Look, we're 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 in business, so it's not. We're not trying to run a nonprofit. We need a balance of people who are both uh, mission focused and and understand that we're building a business. So I don't have a problem with capitalists. I do have a problem with people who just see your company as a black box for generating profits. That's not the purpose. If, if you, if you wanted that, then you just invest in a bond or invest in a company that sort of generates the prints money and you're a happy shareholder and you can be a passive shareholder. That's not what you do when you're a founder uh, or part of a management team. It's not what you do when you invest in for us at Sequoia as, as venture capitalists. Some people might see their jobs as investing low, uh, sort of buying low and selling high. We never think about our job at Sequoia as an investor. We think about our jobs as being business partners to the founders that we back because we're also on that mission. And we, we're on our own mission. We believe in the mission of entrepreneurship. We also believe in the mission of great causes. And the money that comes from um, Sequoia comes from LPs that are foundations, institutions, charities. So when we do good work uh, with our founders, it benefits a university that's providing free tuition for a student. It benefits people who are doing research that are trying to find a vaccine for COVID or for something else or for HIV. It benefits organizations that are trying to fight hunger and social justice, uh, like the Ford Foundation. And so I think when we look for, this is the reason why when we look for founders, we look for people with high conviction about how broken the world is and why they want to go fix the world. They have high conviction because they've think, thought about the problem, they've experienced the pain, and they want to go correct it. Um, and you know they're also very clear about why this, this world is broken because they've thought about it and they've asked why 15 times and they've not gotten a satisfactory answer and they're thoughtful about their creative approach they're not trying to attack everything related into that industry they're finding a wedge that is that hasn't been attacked before and there's no reason why it hasn't been attacked before and if you think about some the successful founders they look at an industry and they're like well this industry is kind of built on a set of assumptions let's say there are 100 assumptions they're only attacking five out of the hundred, like a small percentage of the assumptions. Uh, and yet that's their way in to go disrupt that industry. Um, and we, we just love founders that have clarity and conviction and courage to go do that. And, and also the creativity to find that 
that that small wedge in that ends up being disruptive. Does there and I, yes, I love I, Brian I love, is an example of that. Yes, yeah, I was actually just going to ask: Do you what is an example of of a founder where maybe you went to the meeting and you're like, I don't know what insight this these founders are going to have, and and then left feeling like, holy shit, that I had never thought about how broken this was or that was, and and that's a really interesting narrow edge of the wedge. And Airbnb or or maybe one lesser known. What's an example where? You kind of had that that feeling, maybe even in the first meeting. Whoa, they have some insight, and this is a really interesting narrow edge of the wedge. Yeah, I think if you sort of summarize the founding stories of these companies, they all sound great, but it it comes down to like this unique insight that someone has. And I've noticed that in consumer businesses, someone else's feature is another person's bug. What do you mean by that? Meaning like in in Airbnb's case, the feature of hotels is a standard room. Every room feels the same. It's not, you know, so you know what to expect. And for Brian Chesky, that's just a bug. You're not living authentically uh, in a house that is of a neighborhood in that city, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the same is true with um, when I met um, Tony Zhu at, at DoorDash. The bug was that, you know, why is it that the the only companies that are scale can afford delivery? I mean, it makes no sense that a restaurant, which is not kitchen constrained from a capacity standpoint, is it's only constrained by how many people are at that restaurant. So if they could, they would be more than willing to provide takeout or delivery, but it makes no sense for them to have their own delivery staff. And he lived this problem because his, his parents opened up a, a, a small, medium-sized um, local sort of store and work, he worked in the restaurant industry and he drove as a driver and he just experienced this by himself. Um, and he noticed that this is just broken and delivery is just a much better experience. Do you mind going even deeper on that experience with with Tony of um, just... Even and something as 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 massive as DoorDash, what stage did you invest in? And do you mind actually walking me through from if you remember the first email introduction, what what caught your eye about it, and and even what caught your eye and intrigued about your first interactions with with Tony? Just to walk listeners through what it looks like to for Sequoia to meet with a founder, and and really these things sound really big and and massive Sequoia meeting with DoorDash, but it's really, you know, they really come down to Alfred meeting with Tony. Um, do you mind walking us through that example, if you remember the details? Sure. I, I remember meeting Tony through an email introduction, and I've always saw this as a problem that it's very hard to get delivery in San Francisco. It's not that hard in New York City, especially in Manhattan. And so like, I, I've always been fascinated why it works in New York and not anywhere else. It doesn't work. It, it works in New York because of maybe density. It may be because of public transportation and it may be a bunch of things, but why is delivery not more popular? And then I met Tony uh, at the seed round um, when he was graduating from YC and I was just fascinated by him. This is a person who son of immigrants, immigrant himself, very, just, you just know he's, he's 
both very charming and has an edge. <laughs> what, what that's that's an interesting combo. What do you mean? What were the things that you picked up on and and you're like, oh, this is really this is an interesting combo. He's just very he's very warm and friendly. Says you know sort of addresses you by name looked you up and understood who you are, trying to make a personal connection at the same time, just very intense about the way he's describing his his business and how much he loves the business. His, his founding story um, all the way back to, you know, his mom coming to, to the U.S. and she was trained as a doctor in China, but couldn't be a doctor here because it didn't make sense to relicense here, you know, sort of worked at, in in local stores and restaurants and and just kind of knew how the restaurant industry worked and how it made no sense that they couldn't eat you know the, the sort of limit to a restaurant is how quickly you turn tables because you you generally have plenty of capacity in a restaurant and successful restaurants uh, turn ta- either turntables very fast or they have takeout or delivery or all of those and I wasn't sure, um, and I'm going to say it's my fault, um, I wasn't sure at The Seed whether this was a company that was serving rich people or rich, well, at that time, rich students on Stanford's campus, or would it extend beyond that? And I really struggled with this. I I didn't want to pass. Um, Many of my partners, some of my partners were skeptical and some of my partners are like, look, Tony's really exceptional. Uh, it is a seed. And so we, we always have these discussions and inside, if you want to sort of know how a discussion happens inside a partnership, some of your partners are supposed to help you and support you by sort of, because you obviously find this company fascinating and the founders fascinating. And then some of them are supposed to play the skeptics and you're always trying to balance dreaming with the entrepreneur and why knowing why it doesn't work. So even if you decide to invest, the skeptics serve a purpose by letting you sort of think through, okay, well, I need to work on these things because these are good points. And we try to have a very intellectual debate about the, the reasons why something will work or will not work. More often than not, we get it wrong because we don't dream enough with the entrepreneurs. Um, and I'd say that we pass on the seed because we didn't dream enough because the data was only from Stanford. We probably looked too much on the data and didn't dream about the fact that, hey, why does this work in New York City and not work elsewhere? And if you sort of have that sort of view, um, then you would probably have made the investments even at the seed. We passed on the seed. I, I stayed in touch with Tony, but clearly, clearly today, the passing on the seed is a mistake. And I, you know, I still stayed in touch with Tony because I just, I just found him fascinating um, and loved who, what he stands for as a person. And uh, we were sitting at dinner for some. Uh, gathering i don't remember what the gathering was we happened to sit next to each other we were catching up quarterly but we happened to be at this dinner and we were at i think chef Chu's in los Altos, or um and we just started talking about how things were going and i just learned so much about how he broke up 
how he's thought about things. He has he thought about a system, how he broke up the problem. Most people thought of it as there's only three or four steps in, in, in delivery, but he broke up the problem into, you know, at that time, 15 steps and now probably a lot more than that. And to ensure operational integrity and, and doing that well. He had some, some thinking that wasn't from training, but was through just, just thinking through the problem that it's not hard to do any of these things, but to do it at scale and to do it well and to make deliveries consistent, it was going to be hard. This is a person who went to college, studied um, math, then studied, uh, was going to go and and did cancer research, was going to go into uh, MD-PhD program, decided not to do that, became a McKinsey consultant, worked at, um, I think, eBay and Square, and then went to Stanford Business School. And I just thought, wow, this is someone that I want to I wanna work with. And sort of getting to know people over time, I think, is, allows you to really, really learn about someone. And I do like getting to know people over time. I don't like these rushed uh, sort of shotgun weddings related to to investments. It's a lot better to get to know the partner that you're going to work with for a long period of time. One of my part, my partner Ruloff likes to say that fundraising, you're you're not looking for money, you're looking for a partner. We really want uh, those kind of relationships at Sequoia. Well, you touched on so many things. I want to go a little bit deeper on one of, one of which is the the observation around not dreaming big enough as being a big mistake. Instead of, I think most people would assume being a great investor is being is being even more analytical, being even more um, skeptical and and critical. And in Sequoia, from the outside looking in, it kind of feels like it is this very exceptional firm that one of the best investing uh, investment firms in the world because they're quite, it seems like quite critical, quite skeptical. Um, and yet you're saying that it's it's actually the biggest mistakes are not dreaming big enough. It makes me want to ask, what were some of your, and I do want to touch on, on Zappos, um, but while talking about Sequoia, what were some of your impressions of Sequoia from the outside? And you joined, I think in 2010, right? Yes. So- Yes. From the outside looking in 10 years ago to being on the inside 10 years in, what were some of your misconceptions or appropriate uh, conceptions of, of Sequoia from the outside looking in and now being on the inside? Yeah, so I, I worked with Sequoia for a long time. It was both at Link Exchange and at Zappos. And so to your point, I had both an in, uh, outsider's view and, an, and now an insider's view. I, I, I would have... You know, sort of summarize my experience with Sequoia on the when I was outside is like these people are all exceptional. Uh, they're so smart. Um, they they ask you know sort of the the toughest questions. They they ask the most insightful questions. They always seem prepared, and they're so long term thinking. Most of the questions were not like why did you miss this quarter. It's like what do you think we did wrong this quarter so that we don't get it wrong next year? And, and so just even in the phrasing of those, the questions, it was quite impressive. And we, we, we worked with Mike Moritz and for both Link Exchange and Zappos. And I thought, you know, he, 
is very much one of my mentors, I would say, uh, and I learned a lot from him. But but the thing that was quite interesting about all of those things is that you know the, it's not just it's just not magical that these things happen. It just requires hard work, and they are we are very very focused on being partners with the founders. Um, so. You know, when Lake Exchange was not going well, Mike Moritz stepped in and was interim CEO begrudgingly because he's like, this is not a good solution. The founders asked them to because they were infighting and they thought that they needed someone to be interim CEO um, to help like fix some of these things. And, you know, he was there probably one or two days a week and he had a he was he had his job at Sequoia. He was looking at new investments. He was running. I think he was. I think he had just been handed uh, the keys to the firm at the time from Don Valentine to him and Doug Leone, because this is in you know nineteen ninety eight ninety nine, and so it was it was a time when you know he probably had a lot of stress. And by the way, we're not a star company. He he was in he was an investor in Yahoo at the time, and he just wasn't going to let up or give in. Nobody leaves anything on uh, left on the court. Uh, and I think there are just lessons around just persistence, hard work, and being prepared. Um, and so I saw I, Mike always came prepared. And preparation requires, like, you, you just always showed up and knew exactly what was in the materials uh, beforehand. You weren't trying to flip through the materials during the meeting. And he was super helpful. Whatever we asked, he would try to do. And, and if he didn't know the or had the answer, he would find someone within his network to have the answers. I, I later found out that, you know, if he didn't have a connection, he would ask the partnership for those connections and then help us with those connections. And I later found out that if he didn't have that connection, he would go through the Sequoia network and figure out ways to get to some to someone through that. We had been trying to sell Nike for nine years at Zappos. And you know, we had some relationships, but every time someone we would get close, that person would get reorged. And so trying to like get the relationship bottoms up wasn't working. Okay, well Mike heard that story, diagnosed the problem, and it's like, well, if it's not gonna work bottoms up, let's try to find our way top down. Well, the CEO won't take our call. Okay, fine. Well, who's on the board that used to be an employee of the company? I mean, he literally thought about that was like, well, he must, if it was an employee of the company at some point, they probably still have connections internally. And so he got us in touch with someone on the board that was a former employee. And that's how we signed up Nike. Um, and it, you know, it's it's those kind of little things. They they seem like little things. And by the way, Tony and Fred would have said, you know, we probably would have eventually gotten Nike, but even just accelerating it by a year makes a huge difference in 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 the development of a company, even even at for Zappos at that stage. And that's such a smart. Yeah, it sounds small, but I, the reason I say wow is because that is a a brilliant little tweak of a former employee that's on the board because of, yeah, so much more. They kind of have the over and the under of the CEO in terms of influence. Yeah. In that situation, if the CEO is like, well, I can't be bothered with this. Why don't you take care of it? They can because they know who who to go talk to. 
um, from a team perspective. And then, and then just, I think the sort of always looking, being super clinical and analytical about the state of the company and its affairs and the trajectory. And Mike always shared. And once I sort of came into the partnership, I, sh- you know, sort of the learnings of Sequoia, what we, we have 47, we have now 47, 48 years of tribal knowledge. And that knowledge is passed down from partner to partner. We learn from each other. We learn from our founders. And we try to sort of impart that back to our founders. And then on the inside, I, I would say I thought I knew how long-term thinking uh, Sequoia was, but that's a different level inside of Sequoia because I, I think we really, really think longer term than almost anybody else on the board, or and in some cases even even more so than uh, in some situations the founders. Um, ServiceNow, which is uh, quite successful in public and market cap of uh, tens of billions of dollars, was at a time almost sold because the founders wanted got a sweetheart deal that was probably in the in the single digit billions. And so, just so there are t- there are times we get it right because we dream we dream big and we think long term. There are times when we get it wrong. Uh, we're in a business that is that will inherently keep you humble. When I sort of joined the business, I asked Mike, what has kept him? And then I asked the same question to a bunch of other partners like Doug and Ruloff and Don Valentine. They kind of, what, what has kept you in this business? Um, and they have different variations of this. Like you get to sort of work with founders who who are building the future. You... Um, it keeps you young because you're always trying new things. Um, there's some variation of this novelty gene that we all have. That's the reason we work in entrepreneurship or in creative endeavors or in uh, venture investing. And then there is an element of a similarity that many of them said was, this job keeps you humble. You could be right about the investment thesis and lose money, and you could be wrong about the investment thesis, get lucky, sell the company, and make money. Um, and this job will keep you quite humble. And we, I noticed this, I, 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 after I left Lake Exchange, I could have gone to a variety of other partnerships. And the reason I joined Sequoia was because they are long-term thinking, but they also just love working with, you know, sort of young, uh, interesting entrepreneurs that, just have a seedling of an idea. It's never too early to come to Sequoia uh, because we generally are very, very willing to bet on a, a set of a founder, whether she is trying to um, reinvent some consumer business or an enterprise business, um, anywhere in between. And, and, and you know, come with that dream of how you're going to reimagine the world it's never too early to come to us because we'll riff with you and dream with you. And if we get it wrong, we'll, we'll stay in touch and, and maybe we'll get it right the next time. And I, you know, I also just tell the story that for Zappos, because you want the inside outside story, um, Link Exchange had this easy fundraising situation because we had an offer to be acquired by Yahoo and Mike Moore. And after that, we decided to turn that down Mike Moritz gave us a term sheet. 
to invest in the company. And that seemed like at the time, it seemed hard to sort of pitch to everyone. But, you know, it was relatively easy fundraising. For Zappos, Sequoia passed twice before they eventually invested. So we're never going to, we're not always going to get these things right. But uh, we try to get it right more often than not. You mentioned two things that I'd love to ask about that. You, you said that it's, it is, when you got inside, it was, they were thinking much more long-term than, than you had thought before. What are some specifics of, of what you mean by that from being on the outside and then coming into, into a place like Sequoia? Well, I gave the example of um, asking the founders to reconsider selling serv- you know, ServiceNow um, and, and shooting, shooting f- um, for a much bigger and longer exit there. Um, that's one example. Another example would have been, I think everybody celebrates um, YouTube being sold, but I think Mike and Ruloff also imagined um, YouTube to be much, much bigger. Um, and they are today. Same with Sec- true world's, with world's second largest search engine. Yeah. Same is true with PayPal. PayPal is larger today than when it was sold to eBay and then when it was, you know, and then spun out of eBay. Those are just some examples. ServiceNow, um, PayPal, YouTube, where it plays the play long. Um, Do you think younger Alfred Lin, 2009 Alfred Lin, without that perspective, would have said, no, these are good acquisition opportunities or YouTube? If you were the the CFO and COO of YouTube, would you have, you know, without that Sequoia maybe mentality or experience, you would have said, no, these are good deals. Yeah, I think the with the height with the sort of as I said with Sequoia's tribal wisdom, you kind of know when these situations are with more more information and seeing these situations play out, you kind of know that in general playing long is the right way of going about it. So long as you ultimately prevail, <laughs> and the question is, will you ultimately prevail? I think, for example, I think you, you've experienced this, and I've experienced this, where you sell a company and it's bittersweet, and there's a sense of relief. You got the company into safe into a safe harbor, um, and you don't feel that great about it. When you feel good about it, it's usually the right decision. When you are bittersweet about it, it's usually like because you you always think about what could have been because there were signs of potential different roads that you could have uh, ended up in. I think you know when you have a dead end and in that situation, you're happy to sell the company or to get out. But when you have a fork in the road, whether to continue to build or not, that's a lot harder. The right time to sell is often at the... The min-max situation, you could potentially go up or you can potentially go down. And so if you can only go up and to the right, you would never sell. If you're going down, you're crashing and burning and trying to sell as quickly as possible. It's those min-max situations where you have to sort of be much more thoughtful. Are we going up or are we going down? Do you feel like you sold at the right time with, with Zappos? Look, I, I think it's hard to complain about Zappos. Um, I think Tony got to do what he wanted to do, which is um, create uh, to reinvent Las Vegas. Zappos was sold for stock. So we got $1.2 billion of stock at, uh, I think, 
$138 a share of Amazon. If you had kept it all, Amazon stock is like $2,300, today. So it'd be like a $23 billion acquisition. So yeah, so yeah, and I don't think many people held it all. Maybe Mike Morris held it all because he he was he he likes to hold companies. But um, I think the it's hard to complain about that situation. And I think Amazon has allowed it to. Amazon has been a great acquirer and it has allowed it to flourish in its own way uh, while adding value to the company. Um, and so I'm a big fan of of situations like that where if you want the power of a large company and they allow you to run it separately as a separate division, that's maybe the best of both worlds. You don't have to deal with you don't have to deal with public disclosure and accounting issue, you know, just reporting and all those issues related to being a public company. And you can run the company as a small division inside a large company. Uh, as if it was a startup. Another friend of mine, the founder of Audible, Don Katz, hated running a public company, realized that, sold the company to Amazon, and Audible has thrived underneath Amazon. And and so there are many, I, I guess what I would say is there are many ways to success. And at Sequoia, we just, when we get involved with a, with a founder, we want to help the founder reach their full potential and and the company's full potential. Um, and there are many ways to succeed in, in multiple paths to success. Um, and tying this back to my mom, when I when we sold Lake Exchange to Microsoft, I called her and told her that we had just done that. And she her first question is, when are you going to finish your PhD? <laughs> I was like, I don't think I'm going to go do that. And she was a little disappointed. A few years later, she asked again, and and I said, come on, like I don't, I don't, I don't think I did poorly for myself. And <laughs> she pointed out that I could have finished my PhD and still gone to business and worked at Google. And the people who joined Google in 1998, 99 would have done fairly well as well. And so, back to multiple ways of succeeding, there there are many paths to success. I think it, you, you just have to find your own path. You have to make your your own choices, and there may not be the most popular choices, but they have to be your own, and you have to own them. Well, as one of the best investors in the world, I think you've uh, I think you have done all right for yourself, Alfred. But the I, I do want to ask about uh, Sequoia a little bit and and what it is like on, on the inside, just tactically when you get that introduction from from someone by email for a founder, what are the next steps? Do you, do you just think on it for a day? Walk me through the entire process to a yes or no with, with maybe one recently in the last few months of just email introduction, uh, like you would get for, I think, um, can't remember who introduced us. Maybe it was Paul Graham. And then uh, just from that introduction via email to chatting with a company, then than what you're saying, the conversations with the partners. Do you mind walking me through that whole arc? Yeah, sure. I think Paul Graham introduced us. He sent an email and raved about you and talked about your idea. We sort of take these introductions seriously. We got connected. And uh, I try to ask about any materials I can learn about both you and your idea. And 
I try to meet you over Zoom or you know, back then we met in person to hear the story. And I think founders are always fascinated. How do, how do I make my pitch the best pitch it can be? I would just say that it's for us at Sequoia, it's not about the pitch. It's about you and your insights. And it's more about that than it is about the pitch. Now, some people are not good at speaking extemporaneously. And so they want to have a, have a pitch and have a deck. And that's great. And that's fine. We, we, we asked um, for the pitch and the deck so that we can get up to speed. But if you don't have one, you just want to talk or you just want to send us a document, we're happy to learn uh, from you in any way you believe you can express yourself the best. We're trying to get your original thoughts and to come through, get that through a crystal clear way for you to express yourself. Some people do that very, very well in person or over Zoom just by having a conversation. Some people do that very well through a memo. Some people do that very well in a deck. And we welcome any of those forms. And I, you know, we try to get a sense of how deeply you thought about the the sort of market and and then we try to riff with you and try to dream about how big this idea is and and then we we basically discuss internally and and decide the next steps and if we continue down the process we will ask you to send us your references and we will call references that you have not uh, provided because we're trying to get to who you are and what you are as a person References tell us a lot. Um, and, and so it's not just about first impressions. It's about what you've done and um, how you've handled yourself in the past. And it doesn't mean that that's going to be your future, but I think having some information of how you handle things in the past does lead us to understand how you're likely to handle things in the future. Well, yeah, and you touched on with with Tony and and DoorDash, it's and it's something we've mentioned. I've mentioned on the podcast before that it's. It seems like ninety percent of a fundraising actually is way before the pitch, way before that meeting. It's your own story of what you've done before, and you just talking about the DoorDash investment. It felt like you spent the majority of recounting what what attracted you to the idea of of what Tony was doing way before, or his background of being an immigrant and an immigrant's son, and and. And so much of that, or even, I think you even touched on him telling you about uh, what they had figured out with DoorDash, that delivery was 15 steps and not just three. And that seems consistent with what I- I've personally seen, but what it sounds like is is investors' MOs. It's, you know, it's, yes, there is the 30 minutes or 45 minute coffee, but it is just 90% of the pitch is not the deck. It's what is the business accomplished, you know? since the standing start 16 months prior, or what has the founder been doing with their lives for the 25 years prior? It seems like it, that sounds consistent. It is, it's, there's a lot of so inordinate, at least to what I would have thought as a founder coming into a quote unquote pitch, an inordinate amount of, um, of weight put on, on, you know, so much more than just that hour long coffee or 45 minute coffee. Yeah, one of the things that I think people, um, should, your your audience should know is that, you know, at Sequoia we don't team with a lot of people, and we we take these decisions very seriously. If you use Amazon Speak, they're type one decisions, right? Like we we decide to partner 
you know, and if it goes well, it'll be a decade or longer. And if it doesn't go well, it's still like five to seven years. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so these decisions are important to us. It should be important to you um, as a founder. Um, and I wouldn't take them lightly. You want to find the right partner and the partnership, right? Like at Sequoia, we, we want to help founders pursue excellence. It's never too early to meet us. We, we tell you that, but it's also the reason we spend so time, so much time trying to think, trying to sort of understand you is, is trying to understand whether we, we are genuinely in a good position to help you and whether you want to pursue excellence. Our tagline is we help daring founders build legendary companies. And we believe everything, anything is possible. We hope founders who come to us also believe that. Um, and we, we seek out outliers. Um, we want to find, find people who are all in on their mission. And getting to know why you are all in on the mission ha- is not a, oh, I started this company two months ago uh, and now I'm looking for seed money. Or I founded this company a year ago. We have some seed tr- traction. We took some seed money. Now we have some traction. And now we're raising our Series A. Or we built this company three or four years ago. And now we're looking for growth capital, and here are our, our metrics. The story of how you got here is important, and the story of how you're going to get from here to the promised land is also important. And so, don't forget that. And and to to sort of sort of bring this down to to like ground, Brian Chesky had this great story of why he want, had this relentless drive to reinvent cookie cutter travel. It wasn't that he just said, I want to reinvent travel. He, he specifically talked about cookie cutter travel. Drew Houston's story was quite interesting. He experienced the personal pain of not being able to sync his files. And maybe the first few taglines are not the best. We can see past the few, first few taglines um, and see a company where, this, where everybody keeps their photos and files on Dropbox. And Andi from House, you know, she she just she was like living the pain of ripping out um, pages of shelter magazines, architectural digest magazines, because she was doing a remodeling. She was working, her husband was working, and they were passing these photos in a vanilla envelope. Like, how crazy is that in this day and age? And she was like, "This, there's got to be a better way to do this." And the Collisons are my favorite. They didn't have a single line of code when they, when we were introduced. And um, Sam Altman introduced us. He was a scout um, for us at the time. And we met him, and you just know their their passion for for just being different was was through and through. Finding their way from Ireland to MIT and Harvard and. Th- those are the things that are interesting. And then, yes, why is the payment industry broken? All of those things make you who you are, and, may- and we're interested in, in that. And what got you here won't get you there, but what got you here is a way to judge just how much you've pursued excellence in the past and how likely you are to pursue excellence in the future. Hmm. Yeah, it's as you're talking it's making me think and you touched on it, it's just not the it's not about the pitch and you mentioned kind of a, a thread here is it's it's not about a, the pitch it's not about the capital it's about the partnership 
and and it seems like so much of what you think about is partnership dynamics, not kind of company dynamics, not just what can this you know black box printing money do, but what is the what are the partnership dynamics of you partnering with a founder and and Mike Moritz in his case jumping into then afterwards uh, you know become the interim CEO. I'm sure that's just always on his mind from then on. Whoever I partner with, I might actually have to become the CEO of their company. So I better choose really wisely and very thoughtfully. And and it really yes has very little to do with with the deck or that you know where that company is at that moment in time it actually makes me think about founder dynamics and and you know some of the research out there shows that one of the biggest reasons companies fails is founder disputes and uh, kind of just tearing companies apart or leading it into no man's land or to suboptimal you know outcomes or selling early and i did want to just touch on what were with you and tony shea at zappos you know, you'd work together where you had gotten to know each other with the 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 pizza um, partnership of sorts and then link exchange. What made you want to team up with them again, you know, a third time with with Zappos? And how did you think through those those dynamics of of your complementary skill sets back then with with Tony? How are you all, you know, what are the strengths and weakness kind of comparisons that made you feel like, okay, this is a great partnership? Well, I, I think we we had known each other for a while, and uh, we had a mutual level of respect for how we solve problems and solve them differently. Uh, we would often try to solve a problem from different vantage points, but end up in the in a similar spot. Um, and so that that those are great; those kind of situations are great partnerships. I think that's true for for Sequoia's partnership. By the way, I think we have partners who look at a business. We, we have people who, you know, were engineers, product designers, uh, people in sales and sales ops. Uh, I was a former, Ruloff was a finance person. I was a finance person, ops person. You know, Brian was in sales and sales ops. Doug was in sales and sales ops. We have Mike Fernall and Bill Korn who were, were uh, from the engineering side. Jess, um, Jess Lee is looks at things through the product lens and the marketing lens. Uh, Stephanie often looks at the consumer product experience. I think we, you know, we have Bogomil who was a product um, builder. We have Sean who was a founder. That's phenomenal that you can rattle off kind of the different, not just uh, all of the the partners, but their, their perspectives in which they're going to, to look at an opportunity. Just a side note. That's really fascinating. And so you have, and I hopefully I'm, I'm I'm not trying to rattle off everyone. I'm not trying to rattle off. Um, I'm not trying to be ex- inclusive or exclusive in any way. I'm just like rattling off to just show you that we have, you know, one of the ways to describe Sequoia is we're like the Motley Crew of venture because people are all different, and I think we can look at a problem from a different angle and get to the same conclusion. And when we do, that's almost always a good conclusion. Uh, and then we debate where we have different opinions and try to get to a decision as not a, not consensus, but we're truth-seeking. We're trying to get to the truth. And so that leads us, I hope, to better decisions. But I know for a fact that when we become an investor and we're all in, we become a, your partner 
and we really do think of it as a partnership, you have access to whoever your board member is plus everybody else on the team. Um, and your primary board member may be maybe me or someone else, but um, they have access to all this knowledge that, um, that they can help with. So in DoorDash's situation, when I needed some help with engineering hiring, you know, I had Tony talk to Bill Corrin and Mike Fernal. Um, and, and so you, you, you have all these sort of abilities that you don't get if you don't have a well uh, sort of complementary team, well-oiled and well-complementary team. Um, and when, you know, I have, a, I have a different search where it's a product search and, uh, for Dolls Kill and uh, I'm having Jess and our, our VP of product, Vicky, talk to, to uh, Bobby, the founder there, because they wanted design sensibilities uh, and, and both of them worked at Polyboard. So, you know, sort of step one is to get the investment decision right. We can look at a company from a 360 degree view. And step two is once we are your partners, we can help you build your company from a 360 degree view. Um, and I think that's true of founder dynamics too. Founder dynamics, management team dynamics. It's not about completing each other's sentences. It's about knowing each other well enough so that yes, you can complete their sentences, but you can also think like them and, and bring to bear different ways of thinking. Um, okay, you think this way, and let me just show you how I think. Do we do we get to the same answer? You know, in finance, a lot of the people will understand we, we generally build models bottom up and top down, and the best models sort of converge um, bottoms up and top down. We try to get that relationship in, in a management team in any sort of decision. I also just think about the book Thinking Fast and Slow, and some people will have good abilities to think fast on a particular situation because they've seen it a hundred times. And other people will have to think slow because they haven't seen it a hundred times, but they're asked to also have an opinion. And in that way, you know, the person who has to think slow has to think for first principles. I think the combination when you have fast thinking and slow thinking, when they combine and you get to the same answer, it's usually a pretty good answer. Right. Yeah. The would you would you describe yourself as a if you had to choose which which side of the equation you lean towards, is it the slower thinking, the more methodical approach, or is it kind of uh, now ten years in, or you, can you slice and dice up an opportunity pretty quickly because of pattern recognition or just experience? It's funny because we have we think fast and think slow in different ways and in different places. Just thinks that I could just spot an error on a spreadsheet or the number that is off trend you know, in like, in like 10 seconds or less, it's like, it's obviously, you know, I, I've seen so many spreadsheets coming up finance that I can, I can do that. And, and so in that situation, I am thinking fast. Am I, how did I develop my thinking fast skills? It was actually originally thinking slow. I had to build these models. I had to, I know exactly what kind of errors are, 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 uh, likely to happen. Um, and I, I, I'm like, Jess, how do you like look at an ad and know it's going to perform well or not perform well? Well, she's she's been in the design space and the advertising space for so long, she can spot those things. But how does she gain that is through um, through the sort of working through 
looking at ads and figuring out which performed, which didn't. So I think if you want to be able to think fast well, you have to put in the hard work of thinking slow. And then in, we, are, we all need to think fast and think slow because they're just areas that we don't have experience in. And if you want to develop and grow as a person, uh, that's how you, you develop and grow. Yeah. Well, the oh, to round out the founder dynamics piece and 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 give color in in my experience, my first startup I, I built, I brought on a co-founder, a friend of mine. That we were basically the same person. I thought that that was a fit because I think early on, at least in my career, early on, I was seeking validation more than I was seeking uh, complementary skill set. So I was seeking okay, really smart friend that we're very similar thing. We we think about things very similarly and solve problems very similarly. And and I was 21, 22 and thought, okay, this is a great fit because of that. And when you start to actually chew on real problems, you realize how limited it is to just have the same. It's like having two pitching wedges. Like what's the point of having two of the the same clubs in in your golf cart? And and really started to appreciate needing um, different skill sets and they appreciate just the limitations of of my own thinking. And I think that that's one of the ways that that, that founder dispute uh, kind of statistic of being one of the leading factors of, of companies failing is founder disputes. Is I think a lot of people would think it's because you get founders that are super different and that could obviously lead to it, but I think it also happens maybe just as much where you get founders that are basically the same and are just fighting to solve the same problems in the same way rather than you know separation of concerns and division of labor. I wanted to ask the second to last question is with that clinical approach that that um, is needed to assess the health of a business, as you look at Sequoia the last 10 years and in the next 10 years, what has Sequoia done really well the last 10 years and what does it need to maybe factor in a little bit more or or make sure that it sees the opportunity for the next 10 years in in the sense of what is the health of Sequoia for the last 10 years and doing things the right way? And where are the areas that you as an operator, as a consummate operator, what would you say are the areas that Sequoia is going to start to invest in more for the next decade? Yeah, I think we don't spend a lot of time thinking about what we've done well. I'd say our our performance is, if you ask our LPs, our performance are we've done really really well, and I think we we have done well in the last ten years to build Sequoia into not just performing in the U.S. Um, in our early stage business and our growth business in the U.S., but also we're, we're, we have build a a, plat- a global platform we have we have um, operations in in China and in India uh, we have a hedge fund and we have a heritage fund and to a founder that might not co- be all that consequential when you're your early stage but it has we have the ability to help you expand globally because we have LPs all over the world we have LPs in in, in Europe and and we have operations in India and China so we can help you expand there in Southeast Asia which by is the way. which is for for listeners exceptionally rare for a for a venture firm to have that and you guys set up the China offices like 20 years ago way before 
um, it was kind of hip or in or obvious that that was going to be a a new technological frontier. So kudos for that. And yeah, for founders listening, that's really rare for a firm to have that that type of foresight and uh, tactical offices in those areas. Yeah, I think we we set them up 15 years ago, not quite 20 years ago or, or less. So over the last decade, we've evolved from a U.S. business to a global business, um, and and we've performed well across all of the sort of uh, all all sort of investing from early stage seed venture growth um, across a number of geos. What we need to do for the next 10 years, I think it. it we, we're constantly evolving. We're tr- constantly trying to figure out what we need to do next. And we don't have a crystal ball. But the one thing that our, comes down to basics is we need to continue to um, look at, at and look at the world and how it evolves and try to help founders build legendary companies uh, of tomorrow. We want to be the you know most influential largest shareholder, outside shareholder of the most important companies of tomorrow. And that means working with founders as early as possible um, when they want to go and disrupt the world. Um, and so that means continuing to find ways to meet founders like yourself and like Brian Chesky and like others that want to go change some aspect of the world. And uh, we love what we do. The reason we, this is like to me, just a fascinating industry. Like, I I get to meet people who have such a burning desire to fix a problem that they see in the world, and whether I agree with them or not, that passion is just infectious. Um, it just sometimes, like some of the conversations I have, like. You're just fascinated. How did someone think of that? And the, the, the creativity can be small, can be big, but some of them you just can't get out of your head. And it could be, you know, putting a pizza oven in in a dorm to wanting to revolutionize delivery to rebuilding web conferencing. I mean, why why would that be an interesting business? But for Eric Yuan, he was like. Everything is broken uh, about this and that. And he could be, I don't have all the details like he, he would, but like, this is what's broken about WebEx. I was there and I know how to make it better. You know, when you meet people like that, this is like the most infectious and the most rewarding job in the world when we get to do that. Now, obviously, it's also not just fun and games, right? Like we had to help our companies pivot a lot during the post-COVID world. There are situations where investments do not work out. Um, half the time when we invest, we we don't recover capital because this is a this is a this is a risky business. But you know, I get up every day because of founders like you and Brian and Tony and Andy and um, Nadia and, and, and Dia and Co. They just want to go change the world. And I, I have the privilege of working with them. And on the other side, back to our LPs, they're doing great work too. And um, I get up every single day because they fund students, they fund vaccines, they fund poverty, they fund social, they fund the solution of poverty. They're trying to 
to solve social justice. They've tried to solve inequality in the, in the world. And so at Sequoia, we get the privilege of sitting in the middle of two great causes, in my opinion. Yeah, I haven't thought too much on that other side, but with with Sequoia's track record and the ability to choose your LPs, it's it's a really amazing. It must be a really cool opportunity to say, well, we obviously want to support the founders on this side of the equation, but with the returns, you know, with the twenty x fund, we also get to choose which are the causes on the other side we want to support, and. That's yeah. That's a part of the equation. I hadn't I hadn't thought about. What is? What, give me one area that you would uh, say that that Sequoia does need to level up in. Because I know you ha- I know you have it in you because it's just how you think of uh, going into this next decade. And I know it's a sensitive you know question because it's it is the company you are operating within, but uh, the firm you're operating within. But is there an area that you can share? That you'd say, yeah, this is one that's on my mind that, that I think we do need to level up in um, based on the last few years or based on what I think we'll see in the next few years. Well, I mean, I think Sequoia will be defined defined by how good we are at finding our uh, – we're only as good as our next investment. Um, so we'll be defined by our, our ability to find the next generation of great founders. And I think the – in terms of leveling up, we know historically that great companies are founded during tough times. Uh, this is a tough time uh, for sure that we're all living through, but great company, great founders and great companies emerge through through these situations. Google survived the dot-com bust. So did PayPal. Zappos had to survive 9-11 and, and the dot-com bust as well um, and the financial crisis. And so, and, and, you know, in the financial crisis, Airbnb got started, Stripe got started, Zoom got started. So we're in a situation where I think the next generation of great founders will start great companies and uh, we have to level up and make sure we attract them. Well, last question for you, Alfred, is what is something that you think a lot about, either personally or professionally? This is one of my other you know, go-to questions for guests. What is something you think a lot about that you rarely ever get a chance to talk about, uh, personally, professionally, kind of across the map? Something that takes up an inordinate amount of mind share in, in your head that you rare that just rarely ever comes up in conversation. I've never been asked that question. I think. Um, what do I think a lot about? I think about. Oh, well, recently, I think a lot about like how this generation of kids are are going to just think that they're so loved, which is great, by the way, because their parents are around them all the time. And I think that's a great thing to have. And, you know, I, um, I, I have a son who's nine and I love him and um, just like any father does. And my wife is great. And we, we just want to raise a responsible human being. And I just think that that takes a lot of mind share and um, it's, it's one of those things that you're always not sure you're getting it right. So my son's kind of like me, a nerd, and we're trying to make sure that he doesn't just study math and want to program, but he also is well-rounded and plays, plays piano and learns chess. And, but also like those are still all nerdy things. And so we're trying to get him to like, play some sports. Um, 
and getting him skateboarding lessons and basketball lessons. And I showed up at school one day and I noticed that he was like me when I was younger, sitting in the corner when people were at recess playing playing basketball. And and he's like, well, I just don't like basketball. I was like, why? Because I don't know how to dribble. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. I'm like, oh boy, um, you know, why don't you just get in there like you do if it was a math problem? And he's just like, yeah, I, I don't enjoy it. And so it's kind of weird um, to sort of talk about this because we all, I think we all have our own insecurities about who we are and it, it shows through your kids it's kind of odd and interesting right, right. Um, that your kids are mini mini yous or or mini anti yous whatever it is your insecurities and their insecurities shine through even if they're they're anti you <laughs> um, and I find that fascinating and but to me the the most important thing is to raise someone who will will contribute back to society in their own way and be a responsible human being and you're gonna this is the ultimate startup in, in one sense. You're going you're gonna to put all this work in um, and you're trying to focus on the inputs because there are no outputs. Um, there's no, you know, you won't know for 30 years or, tw- you know, now 20 years for my son, whether he is a productive functioning member of society because right now he's just a kid. Um, and And making sure that, that goes well is it's also it's not reversible yes they're resilient and all that but i think we screw up our kids in ways because we didn't either we want to have them have a certain childhood that we had or we want them to have a childhood which we didn't have and either of those things are quite interesting to me to think through yeah, with our daughter at two and a half, it's those thoughts. That's a. It's funny you bring that up because I think it is. It almost dominates my wife and I's conversations these days. But it does. Yeah, it doesn't come up in conversation. But it's certainly with you know with friends or outside of our family. But it certainly is something that we think a lot about. Even at two and a half years old, just what her tendencies to do this or that. I wonder where that comes from. I wonder how you know I I can impart some influence on the downside of that or the upside of that. And, uh, and it's, and from starting with, with, uh, the conversation with your parents, talking about partnerships, talking about founders, talking about, and and ending it with, with your children, it's, it is very clear that below the, the waterline with, with you, it's, it is all about human relationships and, and those relationships leading to impact in the world. That is a that is a great one. It's I can't imagine what it's like at nine when these these characteristics of your children become even more pronounced. But um, that is a great one to end on. Uh, I don't know if there, if you if there's closure there, but it's certainly helpful just to hear that it's something you think a lot about because it's yeah I can map it directly to our our lives and our conversations as a family. Yeah, there. I don't think it's. Uh, there is no closure on that one, or you know, hopefully there is no closure. They're always going to be your kids, and you're always going to worry about them, as your parents probably told you, and my parents told me. And it's fascinating to, um, you know, in some ways, one's life work is passed on through their kids, um, because that's that's uh, hopefully 
your greatest accomplishment is how your kids turn out. If only more business podcasts had that sound bite. Um, <laughs> Al- Alfred, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the generosity and wisdom and the time that you shared with, with listeners. Where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me. They can email me, Lynn, L-I-N, at sequoiacap.com. They can find me. at uh, they, they can look up my bio at the sequoia.com, uh, sequoiacap.com website. Uh, it's easy to find me on LinkedIn as well. So uh, um, I hope to connect with you more in the future. Um, don't re- don't just reach out to me every when you need me to show up on a podcast. Um, <laughs> and I hope Will to uh, connect with your audience, uh, whatever way they like to reach out to me. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Alfred. Have a great rest of the day. And uh, and I can't wait to see what the next decade holds for for you and Sequoia. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It really enjoyed it. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that, that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio, our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on below the line. Below the line is brought to you by straight up podcasts.